Our, our scripture focus this morning is going to come from the book of, book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 9. We'll be reading verses 19 through 23 to get us started. And that'll be on the screen behind me, or you can have a moment either to, just to look that up or just to prepare ourselves to receive from God's Word. All right, 1 Corinthians 9, starting at verse 19. Though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone, to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I become like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but I'm under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I became weak to win the weak. I have become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessings." May God bless to our understanding this reading from His Word. All right, so for the past five Sundays, we have been working through something called the Mission Edge process, and it was meant to teach us some things about what, what church can be, perhaps what, what church should be, to give us an opportunity to think about what in the next season of our life we will be as Faith Baptist Church. And... As part of that, we've looked at five different mission markers, and we're going to get into the sixth today. But just to take us back to the point of all this, when we began, I said that really my hope and prayer for all of this was that it would benefit us as a church in two ways. That first, it would grow our understanding and appreciation of what church can and should be. And that second, it would give, help to give us a sense of leading in order to discern what our church will be about in the next season of life together. So that's been what we've been hoping to stir up through our focus on these mission markers, through the small group materials that many of the small groups have been working through, and through what we hope has been some, some thought and prayer that people have given individually as we've gone on this journey together. And so those six mission markers were are basically characteristics or qualities of churches that want to do more than continue to exist. These are about wanting to form the kind of spiritual community that joins God in the ways and places that He is at work all around us. And so here are the mission markers that we've worked through one more time to refresh ourselves a little bit. We talked about living the Jesus way, His way of compassionate love, both when we're gathered and when we're scattered and go back out into the world. We talked about radiating hospitality and tied that into what it means to, to love hard-to-love people. We talked about fluency in the good news, how we can express parts of our story of faith, how we can say in a way that people will understand why Jesus is so good. And we talked forth about embodying the good news, the way we can show love and practical service to others because God cares about the whole of the person. And fifth, last Sunday, Erica preached about embracing partnerships, how we can connect with those who are out there working on this mission that God has and that we can 
you know, strengthen what they do and be blessed in the process. And if you missed any of those, of course, they're all available online through our YouTube channel with them, as well as the audio on our website. And now we'll get into the sixth one, which has maybe the not most intuitive title of practice contextual responsiveness, which of course is just maybe a little bit buzzwordy, isn't it? This is about being familiar with the people and the place you're trying to minister to. It's about being ready to adjust how you minister as the conditions around you change. That's really what it's about. But I'll, I'll read for you the explanation from the Mission Edge Congregational Guide about this. So it says, contextual responsiveness. People of Mission Edge churches know that they are uniquely rooted in their place. There is no one who can know and love a place like those who live in its midst. And so people of Mission Edge churches understand that even their microculture around them is con continually morphing. They have a responsibility to keep abreast, studying and considering how they can most appropriately speak and live into that culture, lest they needlessly become a stumbling block, hindering others in their journey to Jesus. Some churches also develop eyes to see the unique way that God is at work among them. They understand how important cultural intelligence is, and like spiritual detectives, they look to discern God's loving purposes for their special corner of the world. Rather than operate out of hostility or fear or arrogance, Mission Edge churches adopt a posture of grace and calmness and humility as they seek to join Jesus in building bridges with those in their neighborhoods. All right, that's the <clears throat> official big explanation of it. There's a lot packed into that. And I'm, I'm going to pull a few things out of that explanation and then get into today's scripture passage so we can see some connections between the two. So first of all, we know right, that there is one capital C church. There is all the followers of Jesus all around this world. But that global church is divided up into a huge number of diverse expressions, local churches with a small c, and each local church exists in a particular community and culture. It has a unique opportunity to minister to the people right around them. Now, figuring out who a church is called to minister to has maybe become a bit more complicated than it used to be. If you were, you know, a church in a small town 50 years ago, you had a pretty clear idea of who you were charged with serving. It was basically going to be the people within X miles of you. In a city like Halifax... People, of course, will drive past a dozen churches to get to the one they feel best about attending. And people are connecting with church services online. They're getting a lot of other spiritual content through the internet from anywhere in the world. And, of course, in North America, the trend has become people joining larger and larger and larger churches with really high production values and extremely well-developed programs, while smaller churches have, have shrunk on average. But some people watching church trends today are wondering if the smaller neighborhood church is going to have an opportunity to rebound as we emerge from the pandemic. Because we've seen the results of isolation and disconnection and lack of community. And the internet is not a substitute for real face-to-face -face relationships. And also because people have less and less trust in bigger institutions, which we talked about earlier in the series, the small community-focused church may have opportunities to reach and connect with people on a personal level, meeting them where they are, that are not available to other ministries and churches. 
So mission marker number six, this contextual responsiveness thing, it asks us to think about the particular setting that we're ministering in. Like here we are perfectly in the corner of Lower Sackville, Middle Sackville, and Beaverbank. Many of us live in those communities, but some come in from farther afield. And some of you also live in your own little micro-community. Like you, you've got your particular street or your particular apartment building or complex. So what's happening in those smaller and larger communities we're part of? What are people struggling with? What are, where are people turning for help? What would bless them? How is God already at work in the midst of, of all that? These seem like the kinds of questions we should be able to answer about our own community because we live here. But because people are spending less and less time connecting, attending churches or clubs or service organizations or just talking to their neighbors than ever before, we may not have a great sense of the people who live right beside us or the issues at play in our own neighborhoods. And if we are aware, do we care or do we have time to do anything about it? Because in many cases, we are invested in our own families, in our own church community, in our own Christian circle of relationships, which is not wrong, certainly. But that can be true to the point that we are not particularly concerned with the people beyond those connections. So where does that leave us? How can we be contextually responsive? Let's, let's get into today's chosen passage from 1 Corinthians 9 to get a little insight from the Apostle Paul as God inspired him to see what it looks like to reach people around us, at least in his place and setting. So, 1 Corinthians, in chapters 8 and 9 of this letter, it has a lot to say about the difference between exercising rights and using our freedoms to serve others. That's an important thing to start with here. In chapter 8, which I preached on not that long ago, Paul talks about the fact that in this Christian community he's writing to, there were, he said, look, if you, there were some people eating meat sacrificed to idols and some people who were weirded out by that. And Paul says, look, the people eating the meat are right. Idols aren't a thing. They don't really exist. If you have meat that's been used in pagan rituals, you can eat it. It's not actually a problem. But, he said, if you understand that, and have a strong conscience rather than a weak conscience, well, be careful not to do harm to new Christians, to immature Christians, to people who are disturbed by this practice, who haven't quite gotten over the idea that an idol might be something. And so he says, be careful that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. So he says, you have the right I'd advise you not to exercise it if there's a possibility that it's a stumbling block to someone else. Here in chapter 9, we see more of this. Paul begins by defending himself against some sort of accusations. We don't know exactly what they were, but there seem to be some people saying, we think Paul's just in this for the money, maybe, which is a common accusation to throw around at people who you don't want to have to listen to. And Paul says, okay, listen, two things here, everybody. First of all, if someone is ministering full-time to a church, they have every right to receive material support from that church. But then Paul reminds them, I haven't done that. Like, I have every right to do that. I haven't done that. I've supported myself. I preach because I feel compelled to preach, not because I'm being paid to do that. He had the right to be compensated. He didn't exercise that right so that, first of all, he'd be able to say so if people came after him just like they did. <clears throat> Excuse me. 
That's the setup to this passage. He says, though I am free and I belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. Or put another way, like I have the right to do all kinds of things. I often choose not to exercise those rights for the sake of introducing people to Jesus. See, one of the things that Paul would do when he would come into a new city is that he would seek out the local synagogue. And he would go and he would try to share his story and his understanding of Jesus with the Jews there. And he would obey all the rules and all the scruples that the Jewish community had when he did that. He knew them all very well. He'd been the Pharisee's Pharisee for most of his life. And he didn't think he still had to do those things, but he still did those things to be given the chance to be heard. And that's why he says, to the Jews, I became like a Jew, to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. But then, Paul would go out from the synagogue and he would do what no devout Jew of that time would ever consider doing. And he would go and spend time with the Gentiles. He would be in their homes. He would eat whatever they were eating. He would show that he accepted them in order to gain the opportunity to invite them to accept Jesus. And so he continues and says, to those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, a Gentile. Though I am not free from God's law, I am under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. And then even in Christian settings, Paul would change his approach and his behavior if he felt like it would be the loving or helpful thing to do. So that included things like not eating meat sacrificed to idols in the presence of Christians who might find that a stumbling block. And so that's why he says, to the weak, I become weak to win the weak. I have become all things to all people so that by all possible means, I might save some of them. And so weak there, by Paul means a weak conscience, a conscience that's too easily convinced that it's doing something wrong when it's not. That's what Paul's understanding of a weak conscience is in Scripture. So it's, it's important to distinguish here what Paul is talking about from compromising our faith or our beliefs. Paul was not changing his beliefs to play to different crowds or pretending to be something he wasn't. He was simply trying to share the good news of Jesus with as many people as possible by choosing to follow some of the rules and expectations of the people he was with. Paul still told the story of Jesus' life and death and resurrection. He still told the Jews that they were wrong to have rejected Jesus as the Messiah. He still told the Gentiles that their Greek gods and idols were a lie. He told them all that there was a new way, that through Jesus they could know God like they never had before and begin a marvelous new life by putting their faith in Him. But Paul did everything that he could to get get to the point where they might hear this and understand this and be receptive to this. One way that might help to understand the distinction between uh, here is to understand the difference between a politician and an ambassador. Right? A politician's job is to get the support of different groups of people so they can be elected or obtain more power or accomplish some particular thing they want to accomplish. Politicians will often say one thing to one audience and a different thing to a different audience. And I'm not saying there's no such thing as a principled politician, but Politicians tend to be very flexible about what they say they believe based on what is popular. An ambassador has a different job. They go and they live among a different kind of group of people from a different nation while continuing to represent their own. And so a wise ambassador becomes fluent in the language of that nation. They may 
even adopt some of the customs and dress codes of that nation so as to fit in, build goodwill, gain influence in that place. They try to avoid any pointless controversies or offenses that might happen. But they don't change their views and beliefs because of what is popular with the people around them. Their job is to tactfully express the views and positions of their home nation. And this is what Paul is describing about his approach to living and ministering among people. His message about Jesus was consistent, but the way he presented that message varied depending on his audience. And he was willing to do anything that did not compromise his faith if it improved his chances of people listening to the good news he was trying to share. So, okay, that was good for Paul as he navigated preaching in Jewish and Gentile and Christian settings 2,000 years ago. What could it mean for us? I don't know how you see yourself, but I know that I'm no Apostle Paul. I know that this is a very different ministry setting that we're in. But there are really three things I see here that we can take note of as we give some thought to what God may want from us as a church in our next season. So here's the three things that stand out to me from this passage. And the first one is the importance of knowing our audience. Paul had a really good knowledge of the people he was trying to reach. He understood his Jewish audience very well because, of course, he had been one of them. He'd been a shining example of one of them for not, till, till, not, till not not long ago. And then he had done a lot of work to understand his Gentile audience and their beliefs as well in order to connect effectively with them. His message in the book of Acts when he comes into Athens and speaks at the Areopagus, speaking all about their gods and their idols and how religious they are, but how I want to introduce one more God that you may not know about. It's just a brilliant piece of, of, of preaching into that culture from someone outside it. And so in our description of today's mission marker, one of the things it mentioned was the importance of this thing called cultural intelligence. And that requires genuine curiosity about the people around us, about what's going on in our own community. Have we sought to understand the people and the groups around us, including those who are very different from ourselves? What drives them? What motivates them? What are they searching for? And this point had me thinking about what opportunities I could make better use of. You know, even if it's just, you know, the conversations I strike up when I'm standing at the bus stop with other parents waiting for the, the school bus to come, or when you're getting that chance to, to make small talk at the coffee shop or the, the grocery store, excuse me. Should I be finding a club or a sport organization or something to connect with that has nothing to do with my church world uh, so that I might hang out with normal people more often, <laughs> might develop a little more cultural intelligence that way? So this is one thing, just to try to stir that up in our thinking as we think about who we are and what we need to do next as a church, to know our audience. Second thing that's so strong in this passage is the idea of we might need to waive our rights. And one of the things Paul chose to do was not to exercise his right to abandon some of these legalistic trappings of his former Jewish faith so he could have a better relationship with that community. Or he chose not to exercise his right to eat whatever he wanted as a Christian because it might cause his brother or sister to stumble. And this makes me think about how in any church, but particularly in an intergenerational church, there's sometimes tension between those with a more traditional mindset and those who don't have those same concerns. It's very meaningful for some people to 
dress up for church to a certain extent, to treat the church sanctuary with a special degree of reverence, to sing specific hymns from time to time, or lots of other things that just may not matter all that much to a younger person, to a newer Christian, to someone without that background. And of course, you have the right not to value these things. They are not requirements of faith. But we could choose not to exercise that right, recognizing that it can be loving and unifying to adopt some of those customs, that we may even find value in some of them. Or really, just to put all this another way, we can take after Paul by going along with some of the preferences and customs of the people around us. So that's number two, to waive our rights. And number three, and this is the fun one, kill the sacred cows. So now I'm going to say what's going to sound almost like the opposite of what I just said. (laughs) Because the other thing that Paul sometimes chose to do was to exercise his right to ignore some of the major taboos of his Jewish upbringing and his training by living among and ministering to Gentiles. He was free to associate with anyone, and he did so when a proper Jew of his time absolutely would not have. This was even a source of conflict between Paul and Peter, because Peter had this vision about God telling him that, yes, you can go minister to the Gentiles, and for a while he did it. But then he started to back away from it. He started feeling pressured. He started feeling like, oh, people are going to judge me for that. And he kind of moved away from the Gentiles. And Paul ended up calling him out for that and saying, no, no, you had the vision from God. You said that this is what we should be doing. Don't walk away from these people that God loves. This has application inside and outside the church. Outside of the church, really, this can remind us that we should not be stuck up or judgmental, or we should not make it seem like we just don't want much to do with those unpleasant uh, sinners that we encounter, you know, as we go about in the world. One reason that people are reluctant to come to church is that in one way or another, they have received the message from Christians that we don't like them very much. Like that is at some, in some way or at some time, that's what they heard. And our posture needs to reflect that that's not true for us, at least not for me, not for me, not for my church. Our posture should be one of humility and curiosity and love. If your Christian upbringing taught you to treat everyone and everything outside of church world and and Christianity culture world as scary and bad, that may require some unlearning. Now, compared to how much Paul had to unlearn to go from being a Pharisee to the apostle to the Gentiles, it's doable but it may still require some unlearning. So that's outside the church. Inside the church, this point has to do with getting past some of our our good Christian taboos that might hold us back. Can you wear jeans to church? Can you go into a bar? Can you sell things in a church building on a Sunday morning? Can you read fantasy novels or comic books? There are lots of Christian taboos, and breaking them can feel wrong even when we know we have the freedom under Christ's law of love to do these things. Something still might nag at us that says, well, is is God really okay with that even though I believe that it doesn't matter? Or oftentimes it's not even that. It's oftentimes just, well, I just don't want the fuss of this person being annoyed with me because I know they will be. (laughs) Or what will people think? If you were part of one of our small groups over the past few weeks, there was one discussion question that might have sounded kind of scary. And it asked how willing you are for your church to be obedient to whatever God is calling you to, even if it might mean something 
dramatic, like changing the church's name, leaving the church building and renting space somewhere else, ceasing to operate as your own church and joining with another, having a completely different format for Sunday worship. Like, what if there was no singing? What if there was no sermon? What if it wasn't on a Sunday? And none of these were given as suggestions that for things that churches ought to be doing or that our church ought to be doing. They're offered to get us thinking about whether it's more important for us to hold on to what's familiar or to be obedient to what God wants for us in the future, right? Because we could change any of the things I just said and not be compromising our faith in the least, right? It would only be an affront to our comfort. It would mean slaughtering a lot of sacred cows, quite possibly. And listen, I mean, I've, I've been with you for a while. Some of you have been with me for a while. I'm not a wildly innovative or disruptive leader by nature. <laughs> I'm not the guy who says, what if we blew all of this up and built something completely different? It's not the goal or the intent of the Mission Edge process either. The goal is to align ourselves with who God wants us to be as a church and how we can best join Him in doing His work in the world. And so it's meaningful, I think, that Sometimes Paul played by other people's rules when he didn't have to in order to share the gospel. Sometimes he broke all the rules that he used to think were important in order to share the gospel. What mattered to him was that he was effectively sharing the gospel. He said he would become all things to all people so that by all possible means he could save some. And so really, the key question for us today is, not, is, is whether or not we're willing to say something like that. How far would we go so long as it did not compromise our faith for the sake of helping people discover and become fully committed to Jesus Christ? And the truth is that in the churches that I've been part of over the years, the answer to that question is usually not very far. Right? I mean, so many conversations and brainstorming sessions and meetings I've been in over the years have ended with the fatal statement, well, we can't try that. Too many people might get upset. Like, that is where so many good ideas have gone to die. And some bad ideas, to be fair. <laughs> to get to the good ideas, you usually got to try some bad ones too. But oftentimes, nothing is tried because that's what people assume will happen or that's what people wisely understand will happen. And so, no one wants that fuss. And so what I hope we'll consider as we get ready for Saturday's visioning day, as we look to the planning process after that and to come back together and say, is this our plan? Is this what we'll do? Is whether we will, are willing to adapt to the changes that it might require. Can we show some servant-hearted deference for one another and do away with some sacred cows in order to do something fresh? Or will we just kind of tinker around the edges and and hope that, you know, maybe for once that definition of insanity won't be true. You know, that we can keep doing the same thing and get different results. And I know that this feels like a risky proposition because you never know how a change is going to work out. Right? All of this talk of changing maybe big things about the church and worship, it could leave anybody worrying that, well, we'll do things that will cause you to not like your church as much but then nothing else good comes of it in the end. Like that, I, th I think oftentimes that's people's sense. People aren't being selfish when they're nervous about change. I think that's often the concern is that, well, what if really all that does is make this less good? 
And if we could get in a time machine, and if we could go ahead a few years, and if we could see a vision of our church where lives were being transformed and people were regularly finding deep healing in their souls and this baptism tank needed to be filled many, many times a year, and this spirit of love and hope just flowed through us like never before, well, I'm confident that we would all come back to the present and we would say yes to whatever it was that got us there. I think we could do that. The problem, of course, is that we don't know exactly what gets us there. God knows what gets us there. And God can do that or more than that in our midst. And if we do not believe that something like that could come to pass here, as followers of Jesus Christ, the Son of God who died for our sins and was resurrected from the grave, well then, well, let's come together and agree just to call it quits right now and shut this place down and let it be used by people who believe instead of wasting time and resources that could be put to better use. But if we really are faith, Baptist Church, if we really do believe that the Holy Spirit has given us power to be like Christ and to bless His church, well, then let's move forward into our visioning day or the rest of our mission edge process with hopeful anticipation and not worry or fear. Because God has a good plan. The Spirit has the power to enable us to enact it. And when people of faith come together seeking God's guidance, when we believe that, we believe that the Spirit works through us together to allow us to discern what is good. If we together... Pray for, pray for this this week faithfully and for the months that come faithfully leading into that planning process. Will God not answer those prayers? Will God not lead us in the way that we need? Again, if we don't think so, let's give this to someone who believes and support their work. But if we do believe that, then let's get ready for the answers that God wants to give us and the steps that we need to take to do those things. And look, I don't think we're going to figure it out all at once. It'd be great, but probably it won't work that way. But if you can be here on Saturday, if you can stay involved and engaged in this process, that will be a good start. God can work with that. He has done a lot more with a lot less. One final word, and it's the last verse of today's passage, where Paul says, I do all this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessings. Right? I do all this, meaning all of this effort to effectively share the good news of Jesus and His kingdom. I do all of this that I may, for the sake of the gospel and so that I may share in its blessings. You see the important thing sticking out of that sentence, right? That sharing and spreading the gospel is connected to sharing in the blessings of believing and living according to the gospel. And so when we talk about getting more serious and intentional about trying to help the people around us encounter Jesus, it's not simply for their sake. And it's not for the sake of preserving a local church. It's for our sake. It's part of having a full-fledged faith. It helps us to grow to be more than churchgoers who observe a ritual and become Christ followers who are fueled by love and spiritual power. So, you know, this is to share in the blessings of the gospel. This is, this is part of that. So would you 
Would you now just, just pray with me that the Holy Spirit would move among us to let these things come to pass? Lord Jesus, you know very well that I am weak and inadequate to this task ahead of me, ahead of this church. And God, the truth is that, that all of us are. We're not adequate to the task of living our own lives the way we want to. We're not adequate to the tasks of doing the things that we think are good. God, we need you. And God, I want to repent of the sin of low expectations. That sometimes I only expect you to do a little bit. That sometimes I only expect you to provide just enough. That sometimes my trust in you is just barely adequate. God, I want to do better than that and have faith that grows its vision, that looks for much bigger things, that, that just is open to the fullness of who you are and what you can do. And so, God, I pray that you would plant in us a desire, a yearning for your Holy Spirit to be at work in our lives, giving us greater faith, greater power, more gifts, the fruit of the Spirit that will draw people to the difference they see in us, that you would guide us forward into this, this time of sharing, of discovery, of thinking, of desiring, and seeing what all shakes out of that, looking for your will. So God, through your Spirit, please give us discernment for this next season. And God, may that be something that isn't just for the sake of helping this church have a good future, but for the sake of growing our faith, showing us just how much you can do in and through us when we give ourselves fully to you and your work. So, God, carry us forward, I pray. Strengthen and sustain us. Allow us to come together and not create what our future is going to be, but discover and discern it from you through your Spirit. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.